Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley and this is Prime Minister's Week. How exciting. So this week marks 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. So all this week on the podcast, we're going to be taking a look at what it takes to be a good Prime Minister. Uh, how do you win at PMQs? Can Keir Starmer ever become a Prime Minister? Uh, we'll be asking the uh, focus group. Uh, we've convened the focus group asking swing voters and red wall seats later this week what they think of Keir Starmer. We're also going to speak to one of the creators of Yes Prime Minister about the impact they've had on uh, Whitehall. Turns out it wasn't his, it wasn't quite what they expected. Uh, but today we kick off with how to build the perfect Prime Minister. Uh, we assemble the attributes and potentially body parts uh, required uh, to really succeed in number 10. That's coming up next. First, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Let's kick off with a story which actually is on the front of uh, some of the papers today, including the Times. Uh, and you've written your column on it as well today, uh, Libby. This sort of we're now having a national conversation about uh, essentially um, misogyny and the, the culture in schools. It, it, I mean, it was first sort of attributed to being an issue in private schools, but I mean, it seems to be an issue in in, in all schools. Um, and you you've written about it this morning, Libby. Yes, yes. It, it, I mean, it's it, it's a curse, really. I mean, it's a it's a sort of it, it it's probably fed partly by the horrible, violent, um, inhumane porn industry. You know, the fact that very young kids from the beginning see sex the first time they see anything to do with sex really is all of this kind of violence and lack of consent and and sort of weird practices and the shoving of women around. And uh, this it, it's it's a it's a it's a pestilential curse for girls, but also for boys. And one of the things I wanted to say, which nobody else ever seems to say, is that these boys need to be warned that the kind of banter which they are getting away with at school, and to some extent getting away with at university, and sometimes they're getting away with it in the presence of their teachers, or even, you know, slightly kind of joshed along with by some of the teachers, or tolerated by women teachers who are insulted, that when they leave, 
we are now in a prim world, a newly prim world, these last 30 years. Everything has changed in the workplace and they will lose their jobs. You know, the kind of remarks which would be quite normal, you know, between lads or even in a classroom sometimes now, you would be sacked for almost immediately, you know, and they need to know that disgrace and, and ruination could follow this habit if they don't get out of it early. And of course they should get out of it for the girls' sake. Of course they should get out of it in order to be decent boys and little gentlemen, all the rest of it. But they should also, just in their own interests, have a think about whether this mindset, which is not universal among boys, of course it isn't. There's plenty of boys stand right aside from it and hate it. But those who do have that mindset that women can be kind of grabbed and owned and and commented on and judged in that kind of way, that in the end it will do them absolutely no good in the outside world. Uh, and I just thought that was worth pointing out as well as, as the horror of the whole thing. It's, I was sort of thinking about this this morning, Rachel, and wondering, I mean, it's a tricky thing, is it, for, for teachers to sort of police? Because unless they're... I mean, by their nature, conversations that go on amongst uh, pupils are often out of the earshot of, of teachers. Not every, you know, not every conversation that happens out of earshot is inappropriate, but that's sort of slightly the nature of, of what goes on in school. So, I mean, who, who should be trying to stamp this out? Well, I think it's for all the adults to set an example for the first point. I thought there was a really interesting piece by Soma Sara, who's the young woman who's incredibly bravely brought this to light through the Everyone's Invited website. And in the Times this morning, she does a really interesting mm -hmm. piece saying, look, it's all been focused at private schools, but actually it's all schools and it's a cultural problem in society. And I think Libby's right up to an extent. But actually, if you look at our political culture, the, the sort of appalling rape threats and things that female MPs get online, and then actually you've got the Prime Minister using things like girly swat as an insult and then saying, you know, vote Tory and your wife will have bigger breasts. Sort of blatant <laughs> misogyny. <laughs> you know, it just sort of goes that. almost without um, criticism. And it, I mean, obviously it is criticised. But And, you know, then Alex Salmon setting up his own party, having admitted acting inappropriately with younger female colleagues. So, you know, if you look at what some politicians seem to get away with, um, not even mentioning Jennifer Arcuri, but, you know, there is a sense of actually respect has to come from the top and the example from the top. And, you know, I, I, it's incredibly difficult as the I'm mother of boys. How do you raise men boys to be respectful of women and actually in my experience the younger generation is far more aware of this stuff than than uh, my age you know and older that you know they're incredibly aware of how um, to talk about uh, women people from ethnic minorities they're really really aware of gender and race and being respectful and, and treating people appropriately uh, and and in a way that actually sometimes politicians aren't I do wonder, maybe the conversation, but the fact there is this conversation happening and it's, you know, it's very, uh, you know, online and a lot of these stories have come out of this, uh, this website, everyone's invited where people have posted things. That actually, maybe uh, the students themselves might be more willing to challenge this because it, there is this conversation which is going on right now. Yes, I, th I think I think so. It has to be amongst themselves to to, to some degree. But I think I mean uh, I think uh, Rachel is being a bit a bit sort of optimistic about the new rising generation. You know, they they're more aware of this. They don't care about this. They are supporting the gangster rap culture. You know, they are supporting this shouting of women as hoes. You know, they are they are supporting 
uh, and the girls also are supporting an enormous amount of objectification of women and women's bodies and, and showing off of women's bodies. I think uh, I, I think it's 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 far more serious than, than that. I don't I don't think that there is a kind of Generation Z or whatever it is coming up which is which is going to behave better. Not until a lot changes. And of course, Rachel's also right about examples from the top. And that means all sorts of people, and it means it means comedy. It means it means all all manner of of cultural input as as well as uh, actual example. But it's it, the change is coming. I think the change is the change is coming, and the workplace thing is real. I mean, people are being sacked for saying someone's blouse is a bit tight or whatever. It it does happen. Yeah, well, we hope that, you know, it does. When you've got, what is it on the front of the Times today, this sort of senior police officer saying that um, uh, that we are having a Me Too moment in, in education. And I suppose some people think that sounds like a good thing, although, you know, other people would say, well, we've had Me Too moments in other industries before, and it hasn't necessarily, necessarily changed uh, a, a massive amount. Um, let's uh, turn our attention to something else a complete change of uh, gear shift and change of tone. I really want to talk to you about the Brexit Museum. Uh, people with a long <laughs> memory might remember. Uh, when this was first suggested, that some uh, Leave campaigners led by a guy called Gawain Towler, uh, former spin doctor for uh, Nigel Farage, launched the idea of a Brexit museum. They're now trying to raise £400,000 to buy a home for the museum, uh, which could well be in a uh, pro-Brexit town, and another £250,000 to set up the institution with a strategic financial reserve of £350,000. Uh, who knew that they had this plan and then only now they're starting to think about uh, whether or not the sums add up? Uh, I will leave others to decide whether that... Uh, what would you put, though, uh, Rachel? What would you put in the Brexit Museum? Well, I think it's really interesting because we're actually in Brexit. So, the sort of in a way, we're living the museum and it's not quite clear yet how or where it's going to end up. But I think the, what I really... I suppose really what they're wanting to celebrate is the Brexit campaign. But... I think what's interesting is a lot of the vote leave people, people like Michael Gove and even I think Boris Johnson, are now rather embarrassed by that campaign. Things like that breaking point poster, which I assume will be at the front of this museum, um, and the three hundred and fifty million pounds for the NHS on the side of the bus. They kind of know that that stuff was, um, you know, whipping up emotion in a way that wasn't really very reputable, uh, and so. What I think, in a way, what needs to happen is it's the Remain side who need to think about what they sort of misjudged in the build-up to that referendum <laughs> rather than the Leave side that needs to celebrate this because, in some ways, they've got their victory and, um, you know, they need to rest on the laurels of that rather than celebrating something that was, in the end, a bit underhand. There is part of me, though, as a something of a political nerd, that quite... I mean, I quite like being... You know, if you do go into a museum or something when when, obviously, you're allowed to coming across old sort of political paraphernalia. In fact, I remember going to a, um, uh, a museum in Lossiemouth. I can't remember. Do you, uh, is it Ramsay MacDonald? I think they've recreated because he was from there and they recreated his old study. And it's a very it's a tiny, tiny museum. And this is a sort of their, their pride of place is Ramsay MacDonald's old desk and uh, skinned bear rug on the floor. Um, I mean, whether or not it's a celebration of Brexit, <laughs> I'm not totally sure whether or not we need that. But But... but Capturing what has been an extraordinary moment in politics somewhere doesn't seem like a terrible idea. I think it's the worst idea there's actually ever been <laughs> in the history 
of British culture. I mean, what are we going to get? A sort of animatronic waxwork of Dominic Cummings. You know, they said there's going to be a Hugh Gateskill uh, sort of uh, brought to life at the exit uh, of the museum. The point is, as, as Rachel has said, we are still in it. We're still in the backwash. You know, we're, we're absolutely sort of stuck in it still. We've got Macron behaving like a puppy in the manger over vaccines and endless difficulties over Ireland and over migration. You don't write a history on museum of fire buckets while your house is still on fire. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, I, think, I think the whole the whole thing sounds absolutely horrendous. And what's more, it reminds me of this other idea, the, the festival of Brexit. It's now called Festival UK 2022. And that's going to be another nightmare like the Millennium Dome, isn't it? You know, with, with enormous sums of government money being hurled at really some quite awful projects. And I can't tell you the horror of the theatre projects at the Millennium. They'll be just as bad in the festival of Brexit <laughs> thing. Uh, I, just, thing just stop it, stop it, stop it. There's other cultural things need supporting, not this complete tosh. You know, uh, they're trying to raise £400,000. I'm far from sending them any. I may have to go around and steal some breaking <laughs> in and throw it on the fire to stop this thing happening. There is, uh, so um, I have a view. I have a view. The <laughs> only thing we really know about the festival of Brexit is the man in charge of it hates it being called the festival of brexit that seems to be the main the main takeaway rachel well it's just this sense of i don't know it's been such a divisive you know from both sides really difficult time for the country i'm not sure we we need to sort of move on from it and you know make a success of brexit but we don't need to celebrate or glorify all of those awful divisions and remember go over what are we going to have sort of you know Tory rebels listed and, you know, all those terrible front pages about enemies of the people, you know, it's just... You could have the stop, like, could have the stop wanted, Brexit man up... standing outside shouting in your face with his exactly, megaphone. Exactly. We just need to put all of that behind us and not drag it all up and remember it and celebrate it and glorify it. In my view, I'm, but, I'm totally with Libby on I this. Quite and not, I, how long? I, I agree it feels a bit recent, but actually recalling what happens in politics because you know americans are very good at this every every american president gets their own uh library which is essentially a museum you know a museum there was talk of doing a similar thing for margaret thatcher after she died and i think that's all sort of slightly followed by the wayside but in, in terms of sort of just recalling what happens politically in this country uh, we're not oh, terribly no shortage there's no shortage of recording. I mean, and also, you, you, you like, obviously, you're the kind of lad who likes to hang around in Ramsey McDonald's old study, and, and uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't condemn this, you know. We, we're all entitled to our little satisfactions. But you leave it a certain amount of time. Yes, maybe in 20 maybe years' that's time the thing. you could do this yeah. history of Brexit, but we are still living in the backwash of the whole thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it horrifies me. Although, yeah, and no- this whole, the Festival of Britain or whatever it's called, Brexit, it's too sort of vainglorious when the whole thing is be, it's still not resolved and to sort of somehow try and trumpet, blow our own trumpet when it's still very unclear exactly what is global Britain, who are our friends going to be. It just feels a bit premature. Yeah, shall, think... we have a, shall we have a festival of COVID? That's the next thing. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> have a glorious festival of lockdowns with lots of little exhibitions of people sitting all alone in little rooms, Perfect. possibly based on Ramsay McDonald's study. A hands-on exhibit where you can wash your hands. Uh, I can see it now. I can see it. There's definitely, there's definitely... Face mask. Exhibition of face masks. <laughs> Exhibition of face masks. You know, sourdough. The, the cafe only serves sourdough. There's something in this. There's Banana def- bread. <laughs> 
Yeah, you, you're allowed to order in a takeaway if you want to. Uh, there's definitely some uh, some mileage in that. Um, uh, but, or maybe maybe you know the answer is if they are, they could save money rather than building an animatronic Nigel Farage. He's not doing anything these days. They could just just have him there. But you know, put him in a glass <laughs> exactly. case. Um, you can already get him on Cameo and pay. Is it six? Is it sixty three pounds? And you can get Nigel Farage to record you, you a, like a happy birthday message. Um, <laughs> you could just get a get a waxwork and melt it down. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there, and of course you can read them in the Times every week. Libby on a Monday, Rachel on a Tuesday. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how to build the perfect PM. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now it's time for this. All this morning, we are building the perfect Prime Minister, asking for the attributes and body parts that you think we uh, we need. Uh, asking for communication skills, people skills, policy idea and crisis management. Matthew Smith says, uh, Tony Blair's communication skills... Boris Johnson's people skills, Lloyd George's policy ideas and Margaret Thatcher's crisis management and throws in Salisbury's hair. Uh, Jack Walters goes for Blair communication skills as well. People skills of Harold Wilson, Margaret Thatcher's policy ideas, Winston Churchill's crisis management and uh, the hair of uh, Disraeli. Anyway, keep those coming in. Text me 87222, start your message with the word Times or tweet at Times Radio because now it's time for this. Discord, may we bring harmony. I don't promise you that it will be easy. A new dawn has broken, has it not? And now let the work of change begin. This is going to be hard and difficult work. That means fighting against the burning injustice. My job is to serve you, the people. Yes, it is Prime Minister's Week all this week here on Times Radio, at least between 10 and 1. This Saturday, uh, marking 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. And we're going to be discussing what it takes to be PM 
every day this week. Kicking off today with how to build the perfect Prime Minister. To step into our factory as we ask four experts for the attributes and body parts to assemble the ultimate Prime Minister. Times columnist Daniel Finkelstein will tell us about communication. Historian and political biographer Anthony Seldon will tell us about why having great ideas is essential. Author of Jimson's Prime Ministers and regular on uh, the show on Times Radio uh, brings his PM of the week. Andrew Jimson will talk about why Prime Ministers need good people skills. And former senior civil servant Jill Rutter from the think tank UK and Changing York will teach us about the art of handling a crisis. So keep your suggestions coming in and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dip in and out of those. You can text me 87222, start the word times or tweet me at Times Radio. So first on the factory production line to discuss the importance of communication skills, Daniel Finkelstein, Times columnist, of course, one half of Finkelvich too. Hi, Danny. Hi. Hi, Matt. So, uh, first of all, why do prime ministers need to have good communication skills? If it's actually just you know about coming up with good ideas and implementing them properly, why is communication so important? Because you have to persuade people in order to hold the office. That is the essence of the office. I mean, that, I think, is the distinction between the chief minister uh, before 1721 and all the prime ministers we've had afterwards. They haven't been reliant just upon their relationship with the monarch. Um, they've been reliant with their, on their relationship with other people people and they have to be able to communicate with them and obviously that began with the house of commons so the pits uh, for example both the older and the younger relied on their relationship with the house of commons in order to uh, to govern and someone like godrich who was prime minister briefly in 1827 was probably right more than any other prime minister uh, in the whole 300 years on the big issues one consistently after another and absolutely hopeless because he couldn't <laughs> communicate uh, to the Commons, lost the majority that he'd been uh, uh, um, he inherited from Canning, uh, and within you know a few months he was out. And in terms of uh, how you do it well versus how you do it back, because I suppose there are different things. Like there's communicating to your own party, uh, and you know being in the good in the House of Commons, but also you know at election time, uh, your ability to communicate on you know. These days, obviously, TV and radio previously was in making speeches. Have those skills changed over time into what, what's required to be seen as being good or bad? Absolutely. So obviously, you know, it's very different depending on what kind of audience that you give. So Gladstone's style of giving these incredibly long orations uh, would strike all of us now as absolutely hopeless. The ability to communicate using the 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 technology of the day. I, I remember that Gordon Brown in his memoirs, he bemoaned the fact um, that he couldn't uh, kind of, he wasn't a social media prime minister. Well, he was living, he lives in a social media age. You can't not be a social media prime minister. You have to be able to be literate in the technology of the day. And, you know, it's that one of the things that's most amusing is seeing people sort of struggle with the uh, technology that's just a little bit beyond them, like watching <laughs> Winston Churchill's very bad-tempered early uh, attempts at uh, television where he was infuriated that he had to do it at all, whereas someone like Harold Wilson was, in, uh, you know, probably the first to be completely at home uh, with television, uh, and his ordinariness then became important. So... Um, the ability to use the technology of the day is is 
a vital part of being uh, the leader. And it's no point being a great commons performer. You still need to have that, by the way, because you need the commons on your side. But there's no point being merely a great commons performer if you can't put it across on television. Do you think it, it's partly that particularly people who've been at the top of politics for a long time, they end up being slightly detached from the, the communication channels that the, the voters are using and they actually you know when we saw david cameron was you know in the opposition he did web cameron this was seen all sort of very uh, uh, modern and forward thinking doing sort of little videos on youtube gordon brown tries to do the same thing and has you know clearly got the word smile written at various points <laughs> randomly in yeah, his script it didn't suit him i mean it was one of the most brilliant stories in Charles Moore's book on Margaret Thatcher was how when she left office um, she couldn't use the TV remote um, because she didn't know how to and she'd never left a message on an answer phone you know she'd been in, been in Downing Street for a long time and technologies had changed <laughs> so yes uh, you need to be literate and the thing in which you need to be literate keeps changing the style keeps changing and you can see that actually throughout the whole uh, political of, of political history um the the, the magic that um disraeli was able to uh, to conjure up um it seemed before his time to be uh completely ridiculous and he was really laughed at it would now seem completely ornate uh, but for a brief period in the 1870s uh, you know it carried all before it okay so as we're putting together the robots uh, our robot perfect pm Whose communication skills uh, are we adding to this uh, to this robot to create the perfect prime minister? <laughs> well, I, I think you'd have to think that um, that that Blair was an amazing uh, communicator across a range of audiences, right? So he'd be my most future proof because you've got to future proof this person against you know sudden changes in technology. I think Blair uh, had the ability to communicate with Parliament, had the had a sort of mystical magic as well, uh, had the ability to lead a faction, um, and was able to communicate with the public. You know, whereas other prime ministers might be good at one of those things. You know, someone like Rockingham was great at leading a faction, couldn't really communicate with Parliament. So you 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 know the the I think Blair would would stand out. Churchill had obviously got this amazing uh, ability to communicate, but one should say this: he had that in particular circumstances. And how suitable would though, would that be to the ordinary problem, uh, to to discussing supermarket pricing, or um, you know, I think that in the when he's discussing the Iron Curtain or the uh, that, then he'd be good at it. So Blair, I think, had the ability across across all sorts of issues and across all sorts of mediums and i think um historically actually not and that's not merely a contemporary view was one of the great communicators to hold the office very good thank you very much danny finkelstein uh, putting together the communication of our perfect pm but back to the factory floor now because there's no point being good at communicating if you haven't got anything to communicate what about the ideas that go on in the brain of our perfect prime minister so anthony selden the historian who's written biographies of, of uh, countless Prime Ministers over the years, it joins me now. Hi, Anthony. Uh, hello, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Welcome to our Prime Ministerial factory floor. What... It's fantastic uh... to be on the shop floor with you, Matt. <laughs> I can think of nowhere better to be. <laughs> what, uh, how important are ideas? Do we place too much store against it? Is there a, you know, sometimes actually being a... Is it better to be a good communicator with no ideas than a bad communicator with lots of ideas? How important do you think ideas, policies really are? 
Well, I think it uh, as the um, the week is going to progress, it's going to be increasingly clear that you need to have a mixture of skills. And to be superb in one or another, it simply isn't good enough. And Blair, who um, Daniel was highlighting there for his communication skills, was brilliant at communicating, but he hadn't really worked out what he wanted to communicate as prime minister. He had as Labour leader, which was uh, New Labour, um, and that worked very well in getting to power with a great majority in 1997. But he didn't really know what he wanted to do. And so he squandered uh, much of his first year, uh, first years indeed, first four years in power when he had the most political capital and uh, the strongest economy and the most uh, united party and union movement behind him. Qualities that no Labour leader ever in history had anything approaching. And he just didn't know what he wanted to do with it. He had something vapid called the third way, which uh, sounded fantastic. But he just didn't have the intellectual gifts himself or in number 10 to probe what that meant. And, you know, Thatcher didn't have the ideas when she was education secretary under Ted Heath from 70 to 74. She was a kind of corporatist, statist, went along with it, didn't really contribute anything significant to education. But she came across the ideas when she took over as party leader from Ted Heath. Uh, Centre for Policy Studies, the think tank, the IEA. She got into the um, the ideas of the free market, um, liberalism, Hayek, Friedman, uh, Keith Joseph, Jeffrey Howe, and it gave her um, that the, the 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 passport to transform the country. So um, the the nine uh, really significant prime ministers in history, as is argued in a recent book, there have only been nine out of. 55, Matt, uh, all have um, ideas. Sometimes the ideas are thrust upon them, like uh, winning a war. You know, I mean, uh, Lloyd George, <laughs> in, in, uh, when he took over in December 1916, it was pretty darned obvious what he had to do, um, particularly after the utter baleful incompetence of 27 months of Asquith running the war, you know, which was just to get the war done. And when Churchill took over in May 1940, again, you know, that was his agenda, his idea, big idea was winning the war. And it's a great help for any prime minister, great prime minister. Indeed, it's essential to either have your own ideas or to, or to have your ideas thrust upon you. I suppose Boris Johnson sort of slightly benefited from that. And he became prime minister with, well, one clear idea, which was get Brexit done. And, and since then, it's been get Covid done. And actually, we haven't had to interrogate too much his ideas for health or education or the environment or transport or whatever it might be. Uh, you have put your uh, finger on the G-spot of the factory floor there, Matt. Um, <laughs> and, and that is going to decide whether he is going to be um, a really effective prime minister, whether he can make something of levelling up of uh, Britain post-Brexit, of a united uh, Britain with a new role internally and externally in the world. And he hasn't got there yet, uh, but he might get there and we would be completely wrong to write him off. And in terms of when we decide whose ideas we're going to put into our, our perfect prime ministerial robot, who had the worst ideas and who had the best ideas? <laughs> there are an awful lot who either had uh, terrible ideas or more often no idea at all. And, um, you know, I mean, that was a part of the, the difficulty for David Cameron, that he really didn't know uh, what he was prime minister for. Um and he, he had many uh, great qualities um, as a prime minister, including 
uh, communication, very high intelligence, being able to dispatch business with effortless ease. Uh, but he hadn't really uh, thought it through, despite having had four or five years as opposition leader, which is a very good uh, apprenticeship. Uh, so, um, you know, so many of them, Matt, didn't have the ideas or had had bad ideas. Um, and, you know, the ideas don't always have to be in the party's interest. So um, Robert Peel, who split the Tory party for the best part of 25 years, uh, was on the side of being a statesman. Um, or should one say statesperson. And um, the, 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 the most successful have put nation first. They have had that statesperson quality uh, where they have seen a greater, they've seen themselves as in effect the monarch, um, uh, uh, speaking for the whole country uh, and with the interest of the whole country at heart. So go on then, so, one, one final name then. Who are we going to pick? For the best ideas? Yeah. Clement Attlee. Clement Attlee. Fantastic. And they weren't his ideas. They were, they were liberal ideas, not Labour ideas. Uh, Keynes and Beveridge. Terrific. Sir Anthony Sander, thanks very much for joining us and uh, putting together uh, the, uh, the perfect prime ministerial robot. Uh, back to the factory floor then. And now we turn our attention to people skills. Obviously, politics is very much a people, people's person's business. Andrew Jimson, author of uh, Jimson's Prime Ministers, uh, joins us now uh, to talk us through... Who's had the best people skills? Hi, Andrew. Hi, good morning. It's a great honour to be on your factory floor. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew a one sound effect could be quite so much fun? So, uh, how important are people skills? I mean, it strikes me there are sort of lots of different people you need to be able to get on with. Your, your colleagues, uh, the electorate in person, the electorate through the television, whatever it might be. Um, how important are people skills and how has that changed sort of down the years? absolutely vital. And in some ways, it hasn't changed. You still have to have, um, just as Walpole, the first Prime Minister, did, you still have to have a majority in the House of Commons. And your great power as Prime Minister, you don't have lots of levers you can pull and sort of things happen necessarily. Um, but what you do have is lots and lots of jobs to give out. And most people who get into Parliament, they want these jobs. They wanted them in the 18th century, partly because there was a great deal of money attached to some of them. Um, Walpole built a most wonderful house, actually, the greatest prime ministerial house, Houghton Hall in, in North Norfolk, which I would urge everyone who can to visit. It's in a beautiful state, beautifully looked after by Lord Chumley. And it says a lot about Walpole because it's a sort of palace, but it's a palace on a domestic scale. Uh, the rooms are small enough for Walpole to work on people. And he invited them down on hunting for, hunt, for, for hunting sessions, and then he could work on them. He's, I mean, the dining room isn't a dining room for 100 people. It's a dining room for a dozen people where he can really bend them to his will. Uh, and that's, that's, that's what that has had to happen from that day to this, actually. Once you lose your majority in the House of Commons, which Walpole himself did in, in 1742, then out you go. It's a beautifully simple system. So <laughs> relation, relations with, 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 the, with your MPs are, are really cardinal thing. Uh, and I, 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 I'd, I'd, I'd say that many of the 46 prime ministers who don't get into um, Anthony Selden's top nine uh, were still very considerable figures. And I mean, Disraeli, for example, fantastic in the 1860, during the 1867 reform bill, um, the way he wangled that through the commons with, without a proper majority for it, twisting and turning, um, greatly disapproved of by various stern, unbending Tories like Lord Salisbury, um, who said that Disraeli was without principles or honesty, 
but getting the thing through. And that was what the country needed, actually. It needed, the franchise had to be widened, or you know, there was always a danger of, of riot and revolution. And that's what Disraeli did. Uh, and, of course, communicated amazingly with Queen Victoria and amazingly through his novels with a wider public and did learn how to give these great platform speeches, which Gladstone was a master, his great rival Gladstone was a master of. But Disraeli enchanted people, and, he, and the Tories actually were so enchanted by him, they, they, they had a posthumous cult of Disraeli, the Primrose League, which had two million members. It was the first mass political organization in this country before even the trade unions. A staggering. He had a staggering connection with the, with the romantic part of England. Uh, and what about, um, we had a message that somebody texted in a, a moment ago pointing out that we're mainly focusing on male body parts in the sense that yes. most of the, of the 55 prime ministers we've had, only two of them have been women. Is there anything that we can look at, Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May, and the way that they dealt with their colleagues, which was in any way different to, to the men? Do they take a different approach? Well, Margaret Thatcher was a as a young politician, she refused to give speeches on women's issues. She gives speeches about the economy, and you know, just uh, she. So, in, in a way, she beat the men at their own game, and those Tory men had no real idea how to deal with her. Um, but she didn't promote very many women, virtually none, into the cabinet, which she said they weren't good enough. Um, so, in, in a funny way, she wasn't a great. I mean, obviously, she was a trailblazer, and the Tories, as so often, they put their hands. Their, their fortunes in the hands of an outsider, really, or a new person. Um, uh, the first woman, an amazing thing. But she, um, Theresa May has done a lot for women, actually, because she's got this organisation, Women to Win, and she's really encouraged and mentored um, women um, who are often not as, not as boastful as men. So <laughs> men, I mean, you don't do this, Matt, but some men go around sort of swanking and saying that they're great and they actually go and see the boss and they, they say, you should give me an even more senior position and even more money. You'd never and catch we, me doing that. I'm just glad, <laughs> glad to be gainfully employed, <laughs> so Andrew. I'm too shy to do that as well. I mean, I might have, I might have you know, I don't know where I might have got if I, if I knew I had to show off. <laughs> you you and I could have both been but, prime minister by now. Andrew. Anyhow, women often don't. I mean, uh, they People like Barbara Castle and Margaret Thatcher who don't well fight their corner, but they're, they're not uh, all. So um, Theresa May, I think one of the things she deserves credit for is, is actually, I think there were only about 13 or 17 women, conservative women in Parliament when she got in in 97. And it, there are now, I mean, still smaller, much smaller proportion than Labour. but It's now but much better than it was. Just finally then, just a name, whose people skills are we putting into the robot? Who's, who's, who had the best? Oh, oddly enough, let me mention Jim Callaghan. He failed, but he, 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 was, he raised the whole tone of public life and he was Sonny Jim. He, uh, and he, he, he amazingly changed economic policy in 1976, actually. A great achievement in very, very difficult circumstances. Fantastic. Andrew Jimson, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, as ever, you'll be able to catch Andrew uh, next week. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up where we left off as our, with our trawl through uh, Prime Ministers. Uh, we're doing a different Prime Minister every week this year. We'll do, we'll, he'll be back to do that next week. But it's back to the factory floor now. It's all very well and good, having ideas and getting on with people. But sometimes bad things happen on your watch. And how you handle a crisis could make or break you as a Prime Minister. Let's speak to Jill Rutter, former senior civil servant, uh, now at the UK in a changing Europe uh, think tank and the Institute for Government. Uh, hi, Jill. Hi, Matt. Uh, welcome to the factory. Welcome to the factory. So, 
Uh, the cri- what sort of, I mean, I suppose a crisis can take any form, can it? An economic crisis, a health crisis we're currently going through now, uh, a, a war. Uh, what's the worst sort of crisis, do you think, for a prime minister to face? I think the current crisis is the worst sort of crisis for any prime minister to, to face. As lots of other prime ministers have said, people like Tony Blair and John Major, uh, Boris Johnson faces a crisis on a scale that none of the current sort of living prime ministers have ever had to face because it works on so many dimensions, the health crisis and economic crisis. And the other thing is it's a very, very long crisis. Uh, a lot of the things we call crises, you know, maybe it's a flood crisis, you know, go and pull the wellies on, get down there, floods recede after a week. We're actually very bad at dealing with the aftermath of that. Terrorist crisis, few days, you know, then you put in place some longer term measures. Even Gordon Brown's economic crisis, you know, lasted quite a bit longer, but it sort of, you know, was abating after sort of 18 months here. We just don't know. So it's very difficult. It's also a matter of life and death, which makes it uh, a really difficult one. And uh, during your time, and you were in the civil service, you worked in the, I think the Treasury and in Number 10. What were the sort of crises that you faced uh, up close? So so I would say I was pretty much crisis-free zone. But uh, <laughs> Obviously, uh, obviously. First... I'm not saying that you caused any of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me know. Well, my first sort of big crisis, I suppose, was, um, was I was in the Chancellor of the Exchequer's office during the Falklands crisis. But what was very clear then was there was only one thing for the Treasury to do, which was to keep its head very firmly down, because the one thing Mrs Thatcher wouldn't have is any sense that we were going to uh, take costs into account when she sent that task force uh, down to the Falklands. It seemed like quite a long time. I remember the Chancellor being quite shocked when the Sheffield was sunk and people were actually killed. And uh, his principal private secretary then explained to him that if you went to war, this sort of thing did happen. Uh, so that was uh, that was quite difficult. Then we had the miners' strike, which went on and on and on. You could say that was a sort of uh, crisis that the government actually sort of wanted, in a sense, sort of, you know, a bit bring it on there. But again, uh, I wasn't particularly involved in that. Um, then when I was... Um, when I was in the Treasury a bit later, uh, I was in uh, I was the Chancellor's press secretary when BSE uh, really went big for John Major. Um, and that was uh, quite a bizarre time. But the government had been a bit slow to wake up for that. I remember being at meetings a bit earlier when the, the first evidence started to come through that maybe BSE was being transmitted to humans. But then the government's initial instinct was to rush and protect the beef industry and not cause panic. Um, and then it came back to bite them big time thereafter. And we had a, a year when I remember that uh, almost every news bulletin led with a picture of a cow. But... <laughs> In fact, I remember being on a French exchange and they were even showing cows on uh, the, the French news. And the, the French family thought that was very amusing, that I was in some way personally responsible for... Well, we are, for we are quite big on cow crises because yeah. I remember then I'd left the government and I was working in Spain during the foot and mouth crisis for Tony Blair. And I remember on Spanish news, whenever I turned it on, there was a picture of uh, of burning pyres of cow corpses, uh, which wasn't a good look for the country, I think. And, and yet it was interesting, when, when Gordon Brown became Prime Minister and he had, he had there was a toe attack and then uh, foot and mouth, and he sort of managed to turn some of those, those sort of uh, crises uh, to his advantage. And actually, he saw his poll waiting source. So who, who are we putting into uh, the robot for their crisis skills? Who's, who's been the best Prime Minister for managing a crisis? 
Well, I do think, I mean, in terms of track record, uh, you would have to say Gordon Brown, uh, much as it slightly personally pains me to say that, because I think he did manage the financial crisis very, very well. But he did pick exactly the right crisis for him, uh, which was if he was going to have any crisis to handle well, it was definitely that one. I think if you actually wanted to say who would be your all-purpose amalgam prime minister for crisis, I would go, I would have to say I would go with a mix of Thatcher, because I think she would have the grip and a bit of the vision, but she'd lack the empathy uh, and maybe getting communications right. So I might go for a Thatcher Blair amalgam. Maybe if you mix Thatcher and Blair, you end up with Gordon Brown. (laughs) With uh, even wilder hair. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.